What is life like outside college? What would you want life to be like if you were back in college? What needs to change about the way classes are taught, exams are conducted, college is run? What do people do in an office anyway? Welcome to the Back to College podcast where we speak to folks who've been there and done that in college and in their careers about what can be done to make education more relevant. As an individual, I'm never afraid of taking up a challenge. Once I take up an assignment, even if it is beyond my comfort zone, I make every effort possible to acquire the requisite skills and deliver the desired outcome. Always eager to learn and share. If you were to go to Zubair's LinkedIn page, and I would recommend that you do, this is what you would find in the About Me section. Typical LinkedIn D stuff? Think again. This is a guy who is currently in the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard, finishing up a master's degree in public administration. Prior to that, Zubair was a deputy director, office of the chief economic advisor, India government. The little thing called the economic survey, the modern version is partly his creation. That apart, Zubair is in the Indian economic service, which stands at the center for global development and IFMR along the way. And it gives me enormous pleasure and pride to report, also a past student of the Gokhale Institute. Who better to have as a guest on Back to College? In this 15-minute talk, we cover his work with the Indian government, the differences, good and bad, between his current college and his old one, and how he ended up at the Gokhale Institute and lots else besides. Zubair is always kind, helpful and all too approachable. Reach out to him via social media and I'll be happy to help out in any way that he can. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Zubair. Enjoy. Regional resource transfers, given what you wrote about them about five years ago, and feel free to explain to them what RRTs are in just a little bit, would you still keep your view of RRTs or have they changed over time? First of all, this uh, catches me off the hook because I have no idea what we said about RRTs then. <laughs> but uh, if, if my memory serves me right, uh, uh, our sense of it was not very positive. Correct. And uh, I think one of the reasons why we felt that it was not very positive is, to, is in terms of the... Like there were many reasons, of course, but one of the main reasons was that at times it creates this very fundamentally tricky incentive asymmetry in terms of how do you convince the states to deliver or take up a serious development project if the primary condition for them doing is contingent upon your support to them and not their own uh, vested interest in it. It also, I think, emerges from this notion that it's a, I think it's a very strong debate in federalism between center-state relations as to how paternalistic should a center be? And why should it be, if at all? And I think, and this is, I want to be clear that when I am sharing this view now, it, it is not a government view at all, so don't quote me on, on this. But this is my view on it, in terms of that, in a flourishing, dynamic country where you have strong center-state relations, where you have so many states, 
and you still have so many development requirements, the longer there is reliance on this debate of more, more IRTs and therefore the more states can do, and the, more, the longer you have this emphasis on only relying on what comes our way through the center but not taking initiatives upfront per se, I think the development challenge will not go. Then you're stuck in this vicious cycle where the states will have some motivation but no bigger incentive to try and tackle the problems on their own. I also, in the same spirit, I should mention that maybe the last finance commission, the spirit behind doing, rationalizing the, the central sector schemes and trying to reduce the CSS support and making it a little more flexible, that could be one way of pushing or nudging the states. But the primary driver for states' growth cannot be RRTs. Like, if, if anything, those, those should be last on the list of something that the state should be relying on. So one, there's a small uh, thrill that I get by speaking about something like this in the Gardgill library because, of course, the Gardgill formula is the intellectual grandfather of the whole debate in the first place. Second, it's a great way for students to learn about incentive mechanism and how if something is guaranteed, you tend to be less incentivized to do more. But in the same spirit of asking this question, and this is based more upon what uh, Dr. Arvind Subramanian read it in one of his columns, would you actually be in favor, and I really should be asking him the question, but would you actually be in favor of having 36 separate CEAs at the state and UT level rather than one central CEA? Would that be better? It's a very good question, Ashish. And uh, I, I should be candid enough to confess that, especially in the last year of when, or, or at least the last few months, when it was clear that Dr. Subramanian is now going to leave, this is an idea that we were toying with a lot. We actually also tried to put up a note internally in terms of trying to have state CEAs. Can we have state chief economic advisor positions? Uh, between us, we had four states, and I can't name them, but who showed interest. They were keen in terms of trying to have a similar model that where they, they can have a professional economist who could be given an office space and a team, both internal and external, and try to take this forward. Having said that, I don't think having 36 CEAs would make the job easier. I think it's a, it's a lot of mess. It's a lot for the system to take on. Bureaucracies, by definition, by nature, are very closed. They're very traditional. They don't like people from the outside commenting about how things are going on the inside. If it they're takes very one year touchy. To open a website. They're very touchy. They like to, like people like to throw a lot of questions as to why things didn't happen. But they're also very close to people from the outside coming in. I don't know how many of you are following this debate, but especially in this government, there has been a lot of push to lateral entry, getting talent from the outside, bringing them in in important positions. And I can assure you there is equal pushback internally against this as well. So I'm not sure if a 36 CEA model works, but if not, then we could still have some regional maybe. If, we, if you can't do it 36, could you have like a, a Northeastern Council, a CEA for that? Right. Eastern Council, Southern Council, something like that, I don't know. There's no perfect model that I have in mind. There is need for some, but not necessarily 36. I think that would be just chaotic. And I don't think the system internally is ready for it. Okay. A uh, couple of more technical questions before we get to what I think ought to be the meat of this discussion. But you had also written a paper a while back about PARA, Public Sector Asset Rehabilitation Agencies. The one simple question that I have about this is, 
do academicians overrate moral hazard or do politicians and policy makers underrate moral hazard so uh, this is interesting because this is something that i shared that opened with dr subramanian in fact when we had when it had come out to be fair at that what we have today in india is something called the bankruptcy law i don't know how many of you know about it it's called the ibcc indian bankruptcy code at that time it wasn't in existence it did come in after that so to be honest both our teams views on it dr subramanian's views on it and my own view on it has evolved for in a way which pushes us away from the idea of para a little bit we think that the ibcc is a potential outlet where things can be resolved and some of the money that's stuck in the system can be recovered if not all there will be haircuts but if you see us us has something called tarp tax toxic assets rehabilitation program they also do the same ibcc is some version of it it's not bad the reason why para was being mentioned then is that that was the first time when the npa problem was it had suddenly like blown up on the face of everybody in india raghu ram rajan had started something in the reserve bank results came out and people realized that there's so many bad loans so much uh, npa around what do you do with it the economy was facing a challenge and therefore as a very big solution to it para came up as a as an option but i think a more gradual and nuanced policy response is ibcc it is yet to deliver it is showing some promise but of course when you enter the judicial domain it again goes out of your hand but i think it's a good way to do it your question about moral hazard i think we all read about moral hazard it's it's very good to read about moral hazard uh, in books in theory about why it's bad and uh, it, it's complement in the in terms of adverse selection i think both are important when you're on the seat of a policy maker the you toy with these questions you try and put in the theoretical framework as it is but also when you're in the policy corridors you also realize that there is a very fine nuance with which politicians and bureaucrats operate i have to be ca candid in terms of confessing that my experience of especially working in the office of ca taught me that people underestimate how smart politicians can be at times it, it, it's a it's a tribe that people don't like to use good words for but it's also a tribe that knows its way through the system so you can't have a very strong preconceived notion about policy because you're an academician and maybe you're an economist so you feel ki ye problem mein ye moral hazard hai ye agent ka role fix kar denge problem solved optimum aa jayega optimum aata nahi hai like to be ca candid with you optimum doesn't come there are so many ifs and unknowns within the system so many negotiations that happen on the table below the table around the table so much that is beyond your paycheck actually at times that is just not in so so see if a better word i were to use i would say there's a lot of information asymmetry and therefore your notions of moral hazard don't really come out to be as true as you would want to so maybe from an economist's lens our team would find that this is the moral hazard and our model shows this and you would be having a meeting with the fm who would tell you that hey but did you account for this information in this model and it might change so the real life application of it does change but it's good to have the frame in mind for sure all right and uh, amongst the papers of or articles written by you that i read to prepare for this the one that i found the most interesting was i think titled insiders outsiders and the ies so about that article i have a couple of questions uh, one 
one of the lines that you quoted in that article was, economists must change, but so must the government. What exactly do you mean from both perspectives? So, <laughs> I, I, was, I, I should also tell you the story behind the article. If you see, this article doesn't have the CEA's name. So it's written by three people, me, Rangit Ghosh, and Kapil Patidar. All three of us belong to the Indian Economic Service. And this was actually an article which was written in response to an op-ed that had come out a few days back by one of the earlier chief economic advisors of India, Dr. Shankar Acharya, who had written very critically about the Indian Economic Service, something to the tune of why are they even relevant and are they even required. So this was a piece that came out. It provoked me especially very, very badly. I told the CEO that I have to write an op-ed on this. A response is required. And that is the reason that we see that, you know, the, the broader tone is to tell you that you can't dismiss the service in today's time. But then if you only say that, Ashish, it's a partial view of things. Economist, being an economist today is a very challenging profession. You have a very big opportunity cost outside. You have zillions of market economists who are ready to give you advice, models, solutions, algorithms. How do you make yourself relevant in such a competitive world? And that is why we focus on the fact that one is the responsibility that is on the service to upgrade itself to these challenges. But B, at the same time, be also open to the idea that you can't have a closed system. These are the same economists sitting in JP Morgan or Citibank that we have to talk to. Maybe when you're too much into the system, you stop seeing what is outside of the system. You also need that perspective. But that perspective cannot only be on phone. Can, you, can the system be a little more open in terms of allowing the outsider to be in, but also at the same time maintaining the relevance and skill or upgrading the skill of the insider? So if you see the broader tone of the article is in that sense. In fact, I've been toying with this idea. I keep putting it up to the Anna also that I want to write the new debate on lateral entry. If you ask me, I'm all for lateral entry. But I also want to make it clear that if that happens, it has to happen with this precondition or requirement that the services themselves are, should also be willing to upgrade themselves to the challenge. And maybe at some point that should be a reverse also. Why, why can't I go to JP Morgan for two years and come back? If, if the person at JP Morgan wants to be a director in GUI, I am very happy he should be here. All, all of us want to work for the country, right, in the end. All of us should have a fair chance. But then it should, the reciprocity of also of it yeah. is also important. So that was the spirit. It was, there was angst in it, but then it had to be a measured open in terms of being candid about what is fair in the idea of people being in. And that was the spirit with which we wrote it, actually. So the reason I found the article so interesting is because that's something that academy also struggles with. So keeping ourselves updated with what is happening in industry is something that perhaps we as academicians do not do enough of. And that's the second question that I had about that article. Continuous assessment. One way is the continuous exams that students have to give, but more how do you yourself keep on assessing where you stand in life and how do you figure out where is the need to update yourself? Given what you have learned in your career, how do you make sure that you're on top of things? So uh, I think one of the key lessons of working in CA's office was that it, 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 it showed me a very dim, dark picture of where in life I am as an economist, quote-unquote. You see, I, when I was making the presentation, I told you that the Team CA structure is a structure where you have people from within the economic service and you have people who are from the outside, experts, consultants. 
in the team that you, in the photos that you saw people sitting around that plate of maggi you also had people who are doing their phds from harvard or berkeley or columbia or princeton and on the other side you had a guy who had just come from gokhale and then given his indian economic service exam so these are two people working in a team trying to work on a policy program we are not at the same level intellectually working with team ca working through the economic surveys working with those people humbled me enough to know that there is a lot that i have to learn it was a very conscious design by dr arvind subramanian of the team that the insider of that oped should know that there is a long way and lot to learn from the outsider and you will have to constantly upgrade you upgrade yourself by looking at what the people at the frontier as you would call them are studying so when i would talk to somebody called let's say a guy in our team called rohit lamba who's just done a phd from uh, uh penn state or somebody from harvard he would tell me about these uh, uh regression techniques that he's using in a model or some way of looking at a question how do how that particular rct give a result and i would be like clueless ki bhai bol kya raha hai yaar ye mujhe to hawa bin lag rahi ki what is he saying and it's only when i we interacted with them that pushed us challenged us first of all motivated us and it was dr subramanian's constant push that ki agar tumko bhi aisa banna hai ya iske at least aas paas pahunchna hai to yahan baith ke nahi hoga you will have to take a break you will have to go out go see where go see a world where the policy frontier is what are they being taught can you learn from something from there and come back and that was in fact a big motivation as to why i decided that i have to take a break from work apply to harvard try my luck and if i get there see what the frontier is looks like and then pass it on to the people in the service so it will not happen only one if one person does it if you want to make it systemic you have to institutionalize it in a way and this is the other thing that that we did before we exited ca's office we now have a program in the indian economic service which which sponsors fully sponsors two service officers for a two year program if you get into any of the top 100 universities of the world so the funding will be governments you can go there for two years you have to come back for eight years because it's taxpayers money but we want to create an incentive where people are pushed to go out go to the frontier learn something and then come back so it's, it's the challenge is also to take you to the frontier and also to institutionalize it and being in team ca at least make me made me cognizant of it okay that's a usually to segue into the next question that i wanted to ask you about now dr arvind subramaniam and i have two questions regarding him the first was you spoke in your presentation as also in the article that you had co-authored in livement on the last day that he was in office he instituted a diversity in team culture brought in a lot of people with not just different degrees but also different approaches to life as students what can you learn about say for example how to decide to form a team to write an assignment but also in terms of how you should think about forming a team in the first place so this is this is an this is a question that makes me a little nostalgic because team ca was family the way we operated team ca as we call them had 10 to 12 members or 15 members over the years and each single member of the team was very different so i you all of you should know that i am not the guy who is best at econometrics in my team in fact i am the guy who is the worst at econometrics in his team if you ask me to do econometrics you better not show that model to anybody outside very risky i am a guy who's more comfortable in the macro side of things 
looking at a bigger picture i i did the bank the para part the, pa, the so i was good at banking investments looking at those how i was working on bloomberg terminals i was good at that we had somebody called parth who would only do big data how do you help data talk use r use python we also had a guy called utkarsh who was a lawyer by profession so a team which is the chief economic advisor's team had somebody called utkarsh who was a lawyer and he actually helped us put a chapter in one of the surveys where we see how income tax tribunals how much time do they take in terms of coming out with judgments and how much cases are pending all of these decisions that were made were made by dr subramanian very consciously because i think the first fundamental understanding of a rule that if a, there were to be one for a team is that don't put same heads in one basket you have to start with the belief that you know some things but you don't know everything he would tell me the chief economic advisor of the country would tell me that i don't know anything if if there is a topic that he doesn't know anything we will reach out to a person who knows something about it he might guide us to a person who knows a little bit more about it and then you collaborate so if you see the survey there's a chapter we did on migration the chapter on migration happened because there was this person called chinmay tumbe who teaches at im ahmedabad we had never met him he was supposed to get a present a prize from sebi dr subramanian was the person who was handing over the present and there he came out with because and we had never done anything anything on migration he gave an idea as to how he had traveled to all post offices of india and all travel routes and he had some research on migration we got data from the railways on every day single passenger travel on migration parth was the guy who was the big data guy who could handle such a big data i would be doing some background research on what are the theories on migration therefore we would put a very diverse different team together on every single project so on a single project there was no single expert i think one genuinely underestimates the potential of having a thoroughly diverse team you can be skeptical about it the skepticism is okay in having a diverse team but don't underestimate the potential of it what the outcome can be can actually baffle you and our learning is that keep it as diverse as possible and you will be surprised by the outcome of it but you have to have people who are generally motivated that's all that you need people should be motivated their diversity should not be a judge of their credential right okay and the second question that i had about uh, dr subramaniam is did you so you mentioned this in your article but also based on what you spoken about over here did you learn from him the art of asking big questions and how does one get better at asking big questions so so i think this is this is also a point that relates to the point that i made in the slide about what we changed about the survey Do, at least from his vantage point i can't speak on his behalf he was a person who 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 knew the importance of asking big questions and why would you do that i think one reason was that if you are in such a big office then if you have to move the wheels you can't move the wheels on small things it's not easy to convince your political bosses every day or to move big things that is why you come up with something like a para or a universal basic income why would you push that idea maybe it's not even relevant i think the approach was that the ideas have to be big both in terms of catching the attention because you need the attention and the buy in of the political master and also in terms of a potential impact that it can have 
that does not mean that you do not ask the smaller questions he was also the same guy who pushed the system internally to have a website for the economic survey it's not a big question but that was pushed internally in a note so you have to understand that there are some questions based on which office you are you have to i think it's it's about being a little bit strategic that are you strategic enough in terms of getting the attention of the right people because only when you have that will you be able to move the cog you can be that cog who can push the wheel a little coming to the part that whether i have learned anything from him i i think the, it's too early to say that that if i've learned anything from him i still keep learning every day from him i keep meeting him meeting him every now and then he he was my professor at harvard last semester he was here last week for a for some work we had a dinner and every meeting with him is some learning in a way but yes now whenever we have to talk about policy questions or at least think about it our default mode is to try and see if we can ask a bigger question and then see if we can break it into a smaller part but can we ask the bigger question but don't get me wrong that it doesn't mean that you only ask the big question there are a lot of systemic incremental small questions to be asked but from a policy point of view there is merit in asking the bigger question at the right time in front of the right people i think that that tact is important fair enough okay now uh, coming to questions more about you rather than the work uh, that you've done especially the ministry of finance one question about or one aspect that really interested me is you're a comparative rarity in gokhale institute in that you had some work experience before you chose to do a masters over here yeah. a was it a help b how much of a help was it and see would you therefore recommend that you get some work experience before you do any degree it's it's funny because <laughs> the, the the rarity was actually not by choice right <laughs> because i just didn't clear any entrance exam i had to do work for a year but uh, i think in hindsight i i i strongly increasingly strongly feel that if in life you have an opportunity to work first and then try out another degree that should be a default position i think there is there is so much presumption about what lies in the outside world before we have even tested it that when you land up there without even having given giving it a shot you are surprised in a way that you're not prepared for and then maybe you just feel disappointed or maybe clueless at times and that's not a good feeling to have and therefore the one year that i did work a it made me resolute that i have to do a masters now i was working on a research project it it was not necessarily all economics but it made me realize that i like economics enough to do a masters in it and b it made my masters a little bit more relevant in some ways not completely though i think the advice might fit well for especially those who are in their undergrads i think where they have to decide whether they want to do a masters course or not i would at least at a personal level i would discourage you to just immediately jump from an undergrad to a masters there is no problem in life to take an year off work somewhere intern somewhere try something out doesn't work and then go for a masters what is like ek saal mein zindagi nahi khatam ho jayegi aapki why to why not take a shot agar aapko phd karna if you want to do a phd after your masters aapne undergrad you did your undergrad got onto the bus did your masters you think you like economics a lot you're contemplating about doing a phd i strongly recommend that why don't you just at least if not anything a minimum one year of work outside to see to see if if you like it like it enough do you still have the aptitude to go for a phd so to have that pause 
to have that reflective phase, to have that hands-on perspective, I think it's important. I think it should be done. If you can, you should do it. Definitely. All right. Uh, next, about your stint at the Center for Global Development, which is where I believe you worked in 2011. Sure, a very small stint. But what I wanted to ask you about that stint is, I'm assuming that you met and worked with people from different parts of the world. What was the difference, not in terms of the technical skill sets, but in terms of the cultural skill sets that you brought to the job and that people from other parts of the world brought to the job? So uh, this this is a job. This is a, this was a job that I did for a very small time, three three and a half months, and it was mostly offline. So like this was a project that was happening in the U.S. They wanted somebody in India. I was helping coordinate with that project. I went for two or three survey visits. Uh, it's interesting that in terms of the work ethic, I think one thing that I think, and this is also in hindsight that I realize, is that. They treat work as work and nothing beyond it. I think people here are obsessed with the idea of work and they make work way too serious in terms of treating work as their life. And trust me, it shouldn't be the case. This is also something that I'm learning while I'm at Harvard now. Last semester, I was an RA for a project. I worked with them for like three months. And for, for people, I think for them, work is work. Beyond work is life. And they know the distinction between it. For people especially us and a lot of my friends whom I see both in the public and private sector, they, they carry their work into their life and they carry their life into their work. I don't know if that makes sense. And I don't think that's a good way of living your life. A, I think one has to get over this notion that if you don't, if you don't do your work, the world tomorrow is going to collapse. It doesn't happen that way. Uh, none of us are indispensable. You have to know when to stop work and move into life. You also have to know when to stop life and move into work. This was one of the biggest cultural things that I saw. I acknowledge and I hope that I can actually imbibe sincerely because I think if you don't do that, it's a big hodgepodge. Yeah. Especially in today's times where you can have crazy bosses you can't do that. You have to con make a conscious choice of segregating between work and life. This is something that I learned, at least saw, and then I'm trying to learn. And I hope that when you guys pass out from here, start working, you don't forget that there is also life. With work, there is money. With money, uh, there's a lot of things that you can do. But that doesn't mean that you stop living. Like, I hope you can make that distinction between work and life. It's, it's, it's important. Culturally also, it's very important. In terms of ethic, I think you, you, you will find that, I don't know if, it's just my observation that you also will be pleasantly surprised to know that don't undersell yourself or don't feel, underestimate your, yourself, yourself as a person. So I, would, I was coordinating this project with a person who was already doing a third year PhD in George Washington University in US. And I was the Gokhale pass out guy here. And in terms of approaching the problem, diagnosing it, framing the question, it's not that it was crazy in terms of how she, the other person on the other side was doing it. So at times, it's, it's, it's okay to not self-doubt yourself too much. Like, you shouldn't be thinking that just because hey, I'm only from Gokhale, that person is doing a PhD in econ from somewhere, I would know nothing. 
have a conversation let the work show you whether you know it enough or the other person knows enough and you might be pleasantly surprised that at times you might be better at a lot of things than the other person is and that's how, that, that 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 is motivating to know all right uh, about the stint that you had at the ministry of finance which year would you describe as your most memorable and why that is a difficult one ashish i think i don't think that if you if i have to define something as a stint the entire stint that i had with the ca it's a dream run for my life i am not even i keep telling tanya this that i am not sure that if i choose to stay in government forever it's very funny right because when you enter government the day you join government you get a paper which tells you the date on which you will retire so the day i joined government in the ministry of finance they gave me a piece of paper saying so mr sayed zubair nakvi on 31st december 2046 you will retire and it's very it's it's daunting right yeah 2046 mein retire karunga why are you telling me today in 2012 this i don't know if i'll stay in government that long even if i stay i am not even sure if i'll get anything close to the kind of adrenaline rush that we had if there was a highlight of our stint that i was to think of it was this moment when we had just released the first survey with dr subramanian and every year at the end of the survey uh, dr subramanian would do a show with pranoy roy at ndtv and we we went to the ndtv studio to for him to do the show when we reached there apparently there were multiple seats on we saw we, we were told that we will be in the audience and dr subramanian and dr pranoy roy will do the show Bef- 10 minutes before the show was about to begin dr pranoy roy comes to arvind and says so your team is going to be uh, on tv right and he starts looking at us and we start looking at each other ki did dr roy just say that we will be on tv on national tv like talking about the economic survey and uh, we thought it's a joke but uh, in the end we ended up being on national tv for that show with pranoy roy did a bad job at it very bad job at it please if, if ever i will actually share the video <laughs> i have that recording you will see how nervous i am sweating from all corners of the world and did a shitty job but it was a highlight man i never thought i'll be on national tv with pranoy roy doing a show with dr arun subramanian it was a highlight okay um about your experiences at the john f kennedy school i have two questions from a gokhale institute perspective which of the learning experiences that you have had at the john f kennedy school is very easily replicable over here and should be done and what is it that just can't be replicated to answer your first question i think uh, this is something that i th- said i will talk about in this session the one unique thing about the pedagogy that the kennedy school or harvard in general and maybe most of the ivs colleges up, adopt is that they have a very strong focus on this notion of uh having inculcating the habit of reflecting on what you what you've studied so if you did a class on let's say you did a class on finance and you shared a case study with people on what happened in the recent financial crisis or looks like a potential crisis in the building making the idea is that every weekend on whatever reading or whatever lectures you've done they just require you to submit a reflective paper a reflective piece four pages four word documents on what you studied what you studied what you found interesting and why why did you think that was so i for the first two times when i did it i did it very half heartedly ki kya hai ye bakwas type ka cheez hai yaar ye mujhse puch raha hai mujhe maine kya acha laga aur bar bar likhne ko bol dete hain chalo maine likh ke diya 
but then you get a feedback from the faculty which is like a line by line edit response to what you've submitted to them saying ki hey zubair you made this point good point did you think about the other point did you did think about this point or a comment a little later saying zubair you highlighted this as a point that you thought wasn't okay could you elaborate a little more so and then you have something called office hours with the faculties i think this notion and this approach of you know scraping you off pushing you ki zara bheja lagao thoda sa you know use your brain cells why did you find this point interesting can you think a little bit more i think if if we can have something on those lines which i think is not crazy in terms of replicating it's it's a it's a notion it it need not be done across all papers you could try it on an experimental basis with some papers on one thing that you taught in the class just this is this is a like a blanket thing one thing that you taught in a class this week that made people pause for a minute and think can anybody write three pages on it it's not easy ashish it's to think that it's easy is initially bahut lagta hai ki are kya hai teen teen page ka bakwas karna hai kar denge it's not easy nahi hota hai when you are forced to think and write ki aisa kya wo ek point tha which professor ashish said that made me think that forces you it takes you back into the lecture it takes you much beyond the lecture and then you have some uneasy questions ki sir i don't know why i stopped at this point and i think if sir, that could be done here that would be amazing actually the thing that the other thing that i really like there which i'm not sure can be easily done here is that back there every year before the semester begins like i'll be going back in the next two weeks for one week the professors we have something called the shopping week it's called shopping week so the first time somebody told me i thought ki yaar pehle harvard ja raha hu aur ye bol rahe shopping karni padegi waisi itna mehanga course ab bol rahe shopping karo wahan jaake so i asked people like, what does the shopping week means and apparently shopping means that you will go and shop for your classes shop for your classes means that for one week all professors who teach at harvard will take half an half an hour half an hour classes that you can enter sit for 15 minutes and exit basically they are selling their classes to you and if you like the like them enough you take them if you don't like them they will not be able to teach that class that semester now that's a very powerful dynamic to make the teacher feel the heat of pitching a course selling it to enough people so that he gets to teach is a dynamic that just blew my mind away and it has all professors ha huh? so it does not exclude professors who are tenured or not tenured everybody has to pitch their classes people if minimum 30 people like that class only then will that class happen i am not very sure if you can do it here from if you ask me honestly it's a far fetched dream right now but i think it just brings a very different level of both equality and pressure on both the teacher and the students it's an it's an equality right it's an equalizing uh tool and it just blew, i was just blown away like these are professors about professors about which i have just heard or thought about so there's a danny rodrick who's teaching something on development there's a rohini pande who's teaching something on something there's a guy called richard zekhauser who's teaching something if you start the wikipedia it never ends and this is a guy who's pitching his course ki hey if you like my course enough do come in for a class i'm like are you serious <laughs> like i have this power <laughs> and i i'm not sure if that can be done here i'm not sure maybe at some point later 10 years 15 years 20 years down the line <laughs> but not now one can work towards it sure okay um 
of the technologies that are currently available to students, whatever those technologies may be, which of those do you wish you had while you were a student at Gokhale? So, so I'm not totally aware of what all technologies are available now. Mm -hmm. During our time, we didn't have a Wi-Fi in our. Do do we have a Wi-Fi now? Both at both the residential campus and here, yes. So we didn't have it. So 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 I can very well say that it would have been great to have it back then. I think one thing that I'm not sure if it is there or not. Especially because this is an institute that talks about economics, claims to be teaching economics. You have so many papers and courses in, in economics. You should have access to a lot of these. If not everything, you should have an access for every student, I think, to The Economist, where the mm -hmm. people should have an access, to The Financial Times, if people can have, can have access. These are things that I also never did, by the way. These are things that my boss would expose me to. And it's not that you have to become an expert in those things, but it's always good to be aware of what the debates are. I'm sure you all have access to all the newspapers that come, of all the debates that happen here. But it's good to have at least, it's always, so this is something that Dr. Subramanian would always tell me that it's good to be a general economist, but it's more important to be an economist who's aware of what's happening around him or her. And when you say aware, it does not mean only domestically, it means internationally. You don't need to be the international macro expert on things, but you also can't be the guy who has no clue of what, if something big is happening around the world and you have no clue about it and you claim to be an economist, there's something not right. So this notion of uh, having access to consciously uh, checking out, consciously updating you, updating yourself of what is happening internationally, even if seeing the business and econ section of The Economist or The Financial Times, and you have so many blogs these days, Ashish. Like today, the culture is of blogs. Yeah, in our times, we didn't have blogs. Maybe if it was, it could have been better. Maybe this is something that we missed. But today, you have so many blogs. There's this, there's, I don't know if, if people know about this. There's this guy called Tyler Cohen who writes a blog. Keeps, like, writes random, so much random things. You, you may not like, understand half the things. But if you can glance through his blogs, you will come to know of so much that's happening in the world. I think technology and the pace at which it's changed things exposes you to a very big world, but it's also limited your attention span. So you're very quick in terms of snapping and moving the page away. It's not a bad idea to at least commit yourself to one or two things that you would do on a more regular basis. And that's why an economist that comes weekly or a Financial Times weekend, just glancing through it and seeing what, what is the world talking about, it's not a bad thing to do. I think it should be done. And, and, and we didn't have that much exposure back Absolutely. then. Absolutely. But what about the flip side? What did we enjoy either in terms of technology or culture when we were students over here that you think has dwindled over time and that students should make an effort to get more of? What time do you think about it today? Yeah, it's a little difficult to tell you what happened in your time and I think it's just unfair to claim that people's so, life sorry, has become... Sorry, Sorry to interrupt you. One, it makes both of us sound very old, but that apart. See, I, I think this is a fact of life that I'll have to get used to that I, I am getting old. I will turn 34 tomorrow and that's going to be a fact of life. So that's okay. But this, and this is something that in a lot of ways I think Tanya helps me look into is that our lives have become much more public, much more social, but in, in a lot of ways it's good and bad. I think it's good in a lot of ways. It's bad in a lot of ways. 
I think back then, because it was not that intense, it gave us more chance in terms of being more close, closely knit. I'm not saying that people today are not closely knit, don't take me the wrong way. But I think the absence of that thing back then, or, or the lack of intensity back then, it had its own beauty. So back then, Tanya and would I, would, I would not have Skype to, you know, manage our long distance relationship or WhatsApp video to do that. It was an audio call over a normal phone we, that we, we would do. It had its own charm. Today, however, today when we have Skype, it helps because if she's in Delhi, I am in Boston, Skype also helps in, in that way. So technology has both enabled. But back then, I think the absence of other things ensured that we, especially the group that you saw on, in the slides, it gave us a lot of time for those personal interactions and long interactions. Like we would just spend literally hours and hours and hours without our phones and chatting about and talking about the world and whatnot without be having to worry ki kiska kitna pages like hua hai ki nahi, kiska kitna download hua ki nahi. And when I say this, Trust me, I am a social media animal myself, not something I'm very proud of. And especially when I see Tanya, because she's just not into it, I see the sanity in that at, at many times. So this is something that I do feel that it's something not to be lost. Like the conversation should not be lost about in, in this intensity of social media today. Okay. I don't know if you've actually taken interviews of people uh, for hiring them for a job or not, but whether you have or have not, how do you assess a person when you speak to that person? What is it that that person needs to show or communicate for you to walk away from that interaction thinking, bande mein ya bandi mein dam hai? So uh, to answer your first question, we have done that. We have hired people. In fact, as being part of Team CA, one of the responsibilities, not only on me, but on team members was to taking new team members every time the survey was coming out. Dr. Subramanian would insist that everybody should be on board as to why we are taking people and everybody's opinions would be taken into consideration. I think one thing that all of you should understand is that when all, if all of you have a degree of masters in financial economics, economics, agribusiness economics, international trade economics, all of you will have a skill set, a quote-unquote technical skill set. There is no dearth of people outside who apply for a job. Some people are exceptional in it, some people are okay with it, some people struggle with it. But at least from our perspective and our learning of forming a team and a team that we found was very effective, that was not our priority. We, did, we, we would want you to be good at what you do, but more than that, our, our primary litmus test would be that are you as an individual genuinely motivated enough to do the job that we are asking you to do? Like what motivates you to do the job? Is it just money? Is it just access to power? Is it just because you think you're the best in the world and there's nobody to beat you? I think that was very important. We had people in our team who, had, who were A, genuinely motivated to be in the public sector and the same will apply on the other side. If you're in the private sector in a team, are you motivated to be in a team which works in let's say X? What is your motivation? What drives you? And B, are you okay with the fact that I will make you work with a lawyer who has nothing to do with economics? Are you okay working with a guy who has nothing to do with what you've learned? So are you okay with the fact that you will, you will be brought into a team which will be crazy, diverse, and will require you to coordinate with them? So this notion of are you okay with working in a team? And are you motivated enough 
for the cause. Your skill is something that we will consider, we would consider, but it will not be the first thing. It will be there. Of course, everybody, we can't have a, a guy who just does not, does know anything and therefore be in the team. But it will be one of the things, but not the thing in the top list. Your motivation and your willingness to show that you can work with people together. Because if you can't do that, there's this risk of ego kicking in, where you feel that, hey, I'm the best, you don't need others. I think that's a very risky slope to take. That's not something that works well in a team. In a team, you have to be humble enough to acknowledge that you know something, but there's a lot that you don't know. If you can have that approach and we can get that sense, yeah. at least we would follow that rule in our team. Okay, uh, last couple of questions from my side before we open, up, open it up to the audience. And this is a shot in the dark, so feel free to pass. But why should students at Gokhale Institute read Arvind Adiga's The White Tiger? Why should they read? So, I, hey, I have not read Arvind Adiga's, <laughs> but I don't know if people know this. We have a reference of that, that in the economic survey. Right. For, the, for those of you who don't know this, we have a chapter in the survey, uh, which is a chapter that I worked very closely in. I was a part of the chapter. We even wrote an op-ed on that chapter, which came out in uh, the live mint. And it's about why the states on the coast have a different development tra trajectory and why the states in the center uh, middle who are geographically surrounded have a different trajectory. It's interesting because this is the other way, this is one thing, this is the other thing that Dr. Subramanian taught, taught me at least very, very, in a way that maybe we never thought about it is that if you only know economics, then what of economics do you know? So he was a guy who was a lot into fiction. He reads a lot. He's a maniac when it comes to reading. And he was so good at attaching literature and fiction into economics and then coming out with the policy proposal. So Arvind Adiga's book would talk about something as to why the fate of the coastal states is different as compared to the fate of the hinterland states. And we actually came out with a uh, paper and an analysis in the economic survey showing the difference in the trajectory and how to look at policy responses for states who are on the coast and how they benefit or states which have resources and states which, have do, which don't. So I think the lesson there is that if for anything you should read the, the book, the book, one reason to read it is to understand the chapter in the economic survey a little better, but also more importantly to know there is a, that there is a lot outside of economics that can actually help you think about questions in economics. It's a very funny way of looking at it, but it's, it's, it, was, it was actually baffling for us to see that how the link was made. All right, and this is one question that I'm not going to let you pass upon. Three books that you think students at Gokhale Institute must necessarily read before they graduate from here? Three books that they must Yeah, this is, this is difficult and I don't want to force any self, I don't want to foist any self, anything on you guys. To be very honest, this habit of trying to read things is something that I've only picked up after I have gone to Kennedy. This is something that I keep telling Tanya. I was not doing this well. This is something that Dr. Subramanian like pushed hard on me. I can't name three books, three books just like this because you can read any three books and you might find merit in them. She likes reading Kafka and what I'm reading right now is this book called Winners Take All. It's a New York Times bestseller. I think more than what books you should read, it's about can you try and inculcate a minimum habit of just reading. 
and setting yourself a target. You don't need to read anything, especially on economics only. There's nothing. There is no need that you read only anything that is on economics. But can you read something? Can you convince yourself to read a fiction and finish it up in like a month or two or whatever? The one book that I did read recently, and it's not something that I consciously want you guys to read, but if you get a chance, I just finished this book by Snigdha Poonam called Dreamers. You might want to check it out. It's a small book, very lucidly written. And it talks about what this generation is facing in terms of a change and seeing in terms of a change. That's one book that I did write, like. The other book that I think maybe that you might want to look at is the current book that I'm reading. It just tells you about being a little more conscious about when you have this self-serving notion of you know what's right, it's always good to take a step back and get a reality check. So it's called Winners Take All by this guy called Girdhar Das. You, if you put it on Google, you can get it. And uh, this is this very, very interesting book. I don't know if you would like it because it's a little thick, but it's called this book called, it's a, it's a book by this guy called James Scott, I think. The name of the book is Seeing Like, like a State. A state. Yeah. It's a book that will challenge a lot of your perspectives. It'll make you see state in a very different way. You can read that book because it was written way back, but it has equal implications for something like a debate on privacy today when Aadhaar debate goes on in the Supreme Court as to why the role of the state evolved. Is it fair or not? And should, it, should you be questioning it at all? So it's called Seeing Like a State. I think that's a book that I, I have really like loved reading. It's, 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 it's been one of my best reads, actually. Right. Okay. Zubair, thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, please help us out by sharing it with friends and family. If you'd like to give me feedback or have suggestions about the show, about guests you'd really like to be on the show or anything else at all, get in touch with me on Twitter at Ashish2727. That's at the rate Ashish2727. Or drop me a mail at ashish at econforeverybody.com. A-S-H-I-S-H at the rate econforeverybody.com. Until the next episode, cheers.